leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. to improve drug discovery and development is to work with more accurate models of human biology and human disease. Organ-on-a-chip technology that provides three-dimensional cell models and conventional microfluidic plates is helping to do that. Mimetis is one company that's delivering this technology to the hands of researchers today. We spoke to Yas Jor, co-founder and CEO of Mimetis, about the technology how it's changing drug development, and whether organ-on-a-chip technology may one day find its way into the clinic. Yos, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. We're going to talk about Momentus, its organ-on-a-chip technology, and how this has the potential not only to alter drug development, but the way physicians decide to treat patients. Let's start with the technology itself. How do you create an organ on a chip? Well, actually, an organ on a chip uh, consists of two things. It's the organ and, and the chip, of course. And usually it starts off with the chip. So we, we develop a microfluidic technology that allows us to define in very small spaces uh, segments which are separated but not uh, physically separated by membranes or barriers. And in this way, in a very small space, say a couple of hundred nanoliters, we can uh, put parts of tissues adjacent to each other with different cell types, allowing the cells to interact and allowing the cells to form tubules. So that's the microfluidic part. And then you put in cells, which you carefully select. You work on the culture conditions. And at the end of the road, you get a tissue and the tissue function, which is very defined, of course. So you, you, you go for very specific tissue function, like a kidney function or a liver function. And taking it all together, that creates an organ on a chip. And the main advantages are that it's very small. Uh, in our case, it's in a standard 384 well plate, which means it's very easy to handle. You can just pipe it and, and, and use robots to, to run it. Uh, it's standalone, so it doesn't need any accessory equipment, and you can basically chuck it into any piece of machinery in your lab that fits uh, a 384 well plate, like, for example, a high-content reader or a plate reader. So that altogether is, in a nutshell, organ on a chip. What's the range of cell types or organs that you are able to provide, and are there any that are more challenging to grow as an organ on a chip? Well... We work on uh, a range of different organs or tissues, if you like. 
uh, including uh, neuronal tissues, mostly uh, IPS neuronal cell type derived uh, networks. Uh, we work on liver, we work on gut tubules, uh, kidney, of course, uh, a range of different tumors. Um, so taking it all together, it's it's a wide range of tissues that we that we try to mimic in our organ on chip devices. And the cell sources that we use to set up these models, that is key for making a good model. And the cell source can range from, uh, say, standard uh, tissue cell culture cells, like cell lines, KCO2s, we use them uh, quite, quite, uh, quite commonly. Um, we use uh, cell lines like NDCKs for some of the kidney work. Uh, but we also step up there um, and use primary material so that's, that's primary human uh, liver, for example. Uh, and also, we're very fond of using stem cell technology. So uh, our favorite sources are actually, uh, I told you already, the iPS-SC-derived neurons, which are a great source to get a variety of neuronal cell types, but also uh, organoids. So that's adult stem cell-derived structures that actually create um, uh, a part of a tissue in a very faithful manner, um, derived from a single person. And what can a researcher do with an organ on a chip that they couldn't do previously, or what can they do more effectively with this technology? I think the most uh, the, the, the features that, that stand out most is the fact that it's 3D, which means the cells are surrounded by an extracellular matrix which you can tweak and influence. So they're not growing on, on a flat surface uh, where there's basically no choice and no space for the cells to actually express their uh, three-dimensional features. Uh, a very important part is that you can create in an organ on a chip barrier tissues. And barrier tissues are essential to the functioning of any organ. Uh, first, of course, for blood vessels. So blood vessels are a key part of, of organs and their tubes. So you can create blood vessel tubes or gut tubes or kidney tubes inside these organs on a chip. So the 3D-ness, the tubes, the control of the microenvironment, including the ECM and culture conditions, are very important. But next to that, an organ on a chip is a device which you can monitor very closely over time. So you can look at it over and over again by just putting it in a microscope, using tracer dyes, using all sorts of readouts, so basically you have a, a, a microscopically small piece of tissue, uh, very defined, that you can challenge, you can put in compounds, and you can follow the effects of those compounds and challenges over time in a non-destructive manner. And, and taking it all together, that provides you with ease of handling and throughput and physiological relevance, which is unprecedented in, say, standard uh, tissue culture on, on flat surfaces. So how does this improve the way drug companies can determine the safety or efficacy of an experimental therapy? Well, that can be done in many ways. So we started off in, in the tox field, and there, of course, uh, the, the main message is uh, you need to set up a tox model that um, outperforms the existing models. Well, there's already a bit of a conundrum because the existing models in tox are often not very good. We all know that, that the translatability of animal models and 2D cell culture models towards people is very bad. So there we were 
facing the challenge of how to set up a model that is good, but that that cannot be compared with, with the state of the art, because the state of the art basically is not good enough. So that's an ongoing process. Uh, we set up, uh, like, for example, in our recent three uh, nephrotoxicity papers, we were working on kidney models, but we're also doing that for, for the, the liver tissues and for gut tissues. And we set up assays and work with pharma uh, to make steps forward towards a widely accepted tox assay. So that's in the tox field. Um, for drug discovery and earlier drug development, it's all about finding compounds that can cure a disease or can, that can set straight uh, something that goes wrong in the tissue. And there we try also, uh, to a large extent, with pharmaceutical companies to make models that, that mimic a specific part of the disease by adding in the right cell types, by providing them with the right conditions. And in this way, you can mimic the disease process inside these healthy tissues. And then you come in with a compound and you find uh, whether the compound, whether or not repairs or restores uh, the normal situation in these tissues. And, and from this perspective, although a lot of work needs to be done, you know, the, the validation of these models is basically still, still in early days, although we make, we're making great progress there, uh, it, is, it is the capability of really looking into a tissue-like structure with uh, a selection of the features that you need for that specific readout in an easy-to-do, uh, high-throughput manner, that really makes it stand out from the old ways that, that pharma used to uh, look at drug development, both in discovery as well as in, in, in later ACME-TOX applications. Does this have the potential to eventually re replace animal models? And what needs to be done to validate this as a, as a, a test for toxicity? Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually totally convinced that at some point in time uh, we will look at animal experimentation in, in drug development and say, wow, those were, the, those were the old days, right? So then we were doing it in the wrong way, and now we have these models that actually are much better. Uh, so that will take time uh, because, you know, the process in drug development, uh, people are cautious, people are, are reluctant to change for a reason yeah, because, because of safety reasons. So I think that we are now at, at the beginning of, a, of, say, two decades where uh, the old animal experimentation will be first complemented with these types of assays and slowly when they're accepted and when the safety is proven as compared to animal experimentation, we'll start to replace them. I have to say that any model that you make in an organ on a chip at this point uh, even if you interconnect multiple tissues, it's never as complex as an, as an organism. So some toxicities, some effects of drugs can only be measured in the context of a living animal or preferably actually in a living human being. So that level of complexity, although people are striving to, to reach that, so the human on a chip initiative, for example, but that level of complexity, I think actually goes beyond the idea of modeling at all. Because if your model gets so complex that it's very difficult to set up and very difficult to maintain and to assay, um, and also because of the complexity, very difficult to interpret, you're actually beyond the stage of, of the necessity of modeling. Then you'd better go to microdosing in humans, for example. 
So that that's that's my general feel uh, about this. The pharmaceutical industry seems to have started to embrace this technology. How has the industry's interest or acceptance evolved over time? Um, there's, uh, there's, there's, this is an ongoing process. You know, uh, pharma has a lot on their plate, and uh, I think there's there's a significant number of companies. I mean, we're working with the, the top fifty pharma worldwide uh, that have embraced this technology and starting to work with it. And what you see is that they usually start off with yeah, some, they're probing a little, they're, they're testing, and when they get the results that they like, they move on and expand the project. So this is, this is a, a slow process, and we need both sides. So we need both farmer willing to invest their knowledge uh, into this, into this the development of, of organ on chip technology, and we also need the organ on chip community, where I think it's, it's really key that we should be fair about what we can do right now. We should not oversell because that will just you know, raise the promise to uh, an unreachable level. Uh, we should deliver what we promise and work together with pharma, but also with, with academics in order to make these steps towards, say, a full validation and acceptation of, of the technology. But, you know, it takes time. What kind of information can be determined with the use of the organo-chip technology? What data is gleaned from it? Okay, so there's a, there's a range of different essays that you can actually run on an organo-chip. And, and the, the first one is, uh, is very obvious. It's is the tissue is in a, in a device that you can monitor. So you can just put it on a microscope and look at the cells. And there already it stands out from many other uh, technologies like, uh, for example, transwells and async chambers where you can put in cells and, and look at, at barrier function, but you can never look at the cells again. And uh, being a biologist, it's always important to be able to look at the cells to see what's going on. Uh, so that's the first. That's just plain, ordinary light microscopy. Well, if you extend that a little, you can use fluorescent markers, live, uh, live dyes, live stains, and follow specific structures uh, while the cells are growing, uh, which is also an image-based live uh, monitoring method. Uh, then a bit further, you can, in the device, actually fix the cells uh, and... Um, and stain them with, with antibodies, with markers, uh, and then use, again, uh, normal fluorescence microscopy or confocal microscopy to get a very nice three-dimensional picture of the tissue that you're looking at. Uh, and then going further, you can lyse the cells, uh, take out the lysate, do qPCR, uh, RNA-seq, uh, or even proteomics, uh, metabolomics, and, and We've done, we've applied all these methods, and it basically works. It's just, it's small, but it's still very relevant and, and, and quite easy to measure. I mean, nowadays, molecular technologies are so immensely um, uh, sensitive that you can easily apply them on the, say, 20 to 50,000 cells that are typically in, in a tubule in our devices. Uh, biology is, is, by its very nature, complex. How well are you able to replicate on a chip the interactions that take place between the various cells and, uh, and enzymes in, in a human body? 
So, like like I like I said before, uh, in a human body, there's there's a lot more going on than just the tissue. So there's you know there's a nervous system, there's hormones, there's you know all sorts of compounds in our blood circulating through the tissues. So the complexity of a full organism, I think, is is beyond the reach of science, and and I would say actually way beyond the reach of science, except for some really easy to do examples like hormonal interactions between known uh, between known tissues but within the tissue if you have full control of the extracellular matrix if you have full control uh, of the medium the medium composition uh, if you have good cell sources and and I think especially stem cell technology provides us with excellent stem uh, cell sources you know with, cell sources that come from a specific genetic background or even a similar genetic background. You can have endothelium from one person together with the liver cells of one person or with the brain cells of one person, which means that, uh, that when we bring together all of these components and knowing that we have full control of the culture conditions, I think we can get very close to recreating a situation that these, these cells are starting to behave like like in a real small part of a genuine human organ. Momentus is not alone in developing an organ on a chip technology. Are there any qualities that make its offerings unique? Well, the entire market of organ on a chip is, is, is in its infancy. And, and we see a number of tastes and flavors that, that various uh, companies uh, make at this point, and and I don't actually see it as competition. I, I see it, there's a lot of complementarity. So I, I just want to mention two examples. Uh, there's in Germany and Berlin, uh, there's tissues, and they're very much uh, working towards interconnecting tissues, uh, so multi-tissue setups. Um, although their their setup is a, is a quite complex device, it requires pumping and, and tubes. So there, typically, you work on on a single model. So there, the throughput uh, comes. Uh, actually, the the complexity of the model comes at the cost of throughput and ease 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 of use. On the other hand, we have uh, Emulate uh, in Boston, and Emulate makes a flexible chip. So there, uh, they can actually put mechanical force on the tissue. So you you grow, for example. Uh, uh, a lung tissue uh, and uh, lung epithelium, and they can stretch the lung epithelium as if it were in in a human breathing lung. Now, that's that's I think a very important part of of, of you know, uh, replicating specific functions of the lung, or or for that matter of, for example, gut tissue. Uh, but also there, uh, the complexity of the the model comes at a price, and so their throughput. But typically n is one, and if you if you work very hard, you might be able to do two or three or four. But that's it. Uh, so there um, are these you know, mechanical forces are important. Uh, in the case of Mimetis, we have a model that allows for multiple layers, so we can set up multiple layers in in a single device, uh, which are adjacent without physical barriers, without membranes. Which are present, for example, at emulates and and, uh, and tissues as models, um, and we have the the 384 well plates, which actually allows you to do lots of experiments. We're talking about you know our our paper last year September in in uh, in Nature was was about about 20,000 data points, which was 
bigger than any organ-on-chip experiment ever done in the world. So there the throughput kicks in in combination with uh, structured tissues, in combination with ease of use, and that is a, is a completely different feature set and benefit set than the others. And, and in this way, we're all sort of serving a very specific market. One of the problems with drugs is that traditionally they've only been effective on a, a, a percentage of the population that's treated. What, what that means is that the one-size-fits-all model of medicine, that patients are often treated with drugs that don't provide them any benefit. What's the potential for this technology to be used as a, a tool of precision medicine? I think there's there's great potential because you know, currently precision medicine is more or less synonymous to uh, to sequencing. So either you do uh, genome sequencing or RNA seq, and you try to find out the differences between patients and try to extract from that information that allows you to to select a specific therapy. But unfortunately, there's a lot of very complex biology in between a sequence and the effect of a therapy, which we basically don't understand at this point uh, to a large extent. We, we do get a few nuts and bolts, but we really don't understand the system. So I think that, that having a phenotypic readout for therapy selection based on patient tissues or on patient-derived stem cells like organoids or iPS cells, that that gives a, a really tantalizing opportunity to create models which are patient-specific and patient-disease-specific that allow for individual testing of drugs on these models and therefore allow for efficacy selection and, and therapy selection for the patient. And that is an, an unprecedented promise, I think. You know, if you, if you just think of this type of application and you could use, for example, organoid technology in an organ on a chip, uh, so you get patient-derived cells with a very specific, for example, genetic uh, uh, malfunction, and you can screen them with the variety of drug that's available for that disease. And before you actually give any you know, medicine to that patient, you can test in the lab which of the available medicines is, is most likely to work and, and all very close to the patient. So based on tissues and based on phenotypes. And I think that is at least a strong complementarity to say the, the genome sequencing based approaches and might even, at some point in time, even replace it. What would it take to make this a, a clinical tool, and do we have the technology in place today to make it both time-efficient and cost-effective? Well, there's, there's work to do, and I admit that. But at Mamatas, we're, we're working on a variety of technologies uh, that allow us to culture, for example, pieces of tumor tissue uh, in hundreds to thousands or even or even more uh, replicates uh, on uh, a vascularized system uh, that's really accessible that uh, and we can add in compounds and we can look at the effects of compounds and we can see the effect of compounds. So that is, that's all in the lab. It's not diagnostic technology yet. It's, it's real R&D, but knowing that actually the proof of concept is, is basically there, and it opens up uh, an avenue towards screening individual compounds, but also combinations of compounds. And I actually think that, that for many cancers, combination therapies 
are are the future. You know, a single compound is, is very rarely capable of killing a tumor or letting a tumor go away, but combinations are much more are likely to be much more successful because they hit the tumor from from two different angles. And I think that perspective uh, that is really promising. But at, at this moment, this is something that we do in our labs. We don't provide it as a product. Uh, there's there's a lot of time needed to validate this and to bring it up to a level that you actually could use it either in a, in a diagnostic or or at least in a setting where you where you provide medical doctors with the right information to make these very important decisions. Jos Dror, CEO and co-founder of Remetis. Jos, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.